for security reasons, we recommend you to land and uniform. Uh, from where did it come from? Where did you uh, find the information about it from? Airport security staff uh, informed they received email. Did it come from uh, departure airport authorities or arrival airport authorities? This is our recommendation. Hello and welcome to the Lithuanian Dream Podcast. As Russian dissident Roman Protasevich boarded his flight to Athens, he noticed a suspicious man at the airport. The man seemed to be following him and even tried to take pictures of his documents. After that, Roman even texted his friends telling them about the experience. He was assumed it just security services keeping tabs on him. Roman shouldn't be scared, after all, this was a flight from Athens to Vilnius, two EU countries, and it's completely safe for him. He would never touch Belarusian soil. When the pilot announced that the plane would be doing a security landing in Minsk, Belarus, instead of reaching Vilnius, the full gravity of the situation hit Roman. The 26-year-old dissident journalist and one of the Belarusian regime's biggest opponents knew what was about to happen. Protasevich, one of the co-founders of the largest Belarusian opposition online communities, Nexta, was going down. Well, you know, Nexta was a channel and is a channel on messaging app Telegram that has more than 1 million subscribers. This channel was used for mobilizing street protests last year. As a result, Petrosevich had become a personal enemy of Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko. And now he was taking Roman down through extraordinary means. He was bringing the whole plane down, claiming that there was a bomb on board. When leaving the plane, Roman turned back and said to other passengers, In this country I will be facing the death penalty. However, the passengers couldn't even understand why this man is so nervous and what is going to happen because it's just simple security landing. Belarusian security forces, although, were waiting in Minsk to escort him to an uncertain fate. That day, flight 4978 reached its final destination, Vilnius. It was eight and a half hours late and missing six people that departed in Minsk. Roman Protasevich, his girlfriend Sofia Sapega, who were arrested in Belarus, and four unknown passengers that willingly decided to stay in Belarus. To comment on this situation, Belarusian government actually, in the face of international outcry with the most of the main newspapers and TV stations showing and talking about the situation, the government of Belarus has tried to back its decision to capture the plane by blaming Hamas bomb threat sent via email. 
Belarusian government also released the alleged transcript of the discussion between pilots and controllers. However, Hamas has denied the claim. And the supposed threatening email itself has a timestamp of 12.57, which is 24 minutes after the actual call between the pilot and controllers on the part of... So this email is not even valid. But what does it tell us about the current state of the Belarusian protest movements? Is this plane hijacking a sign of desperation from failing dictator or a sign of strength from a government that feels immune to international and domestic pressures? Today, we are speaking with a journalist originally from Minsk, Belarus, Hanna Lubakova. She is a non-resident fellow at Atlantic Council and discovering this topic across different media outlets. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak with you, Anna. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, great to be here. I wanted to start with the most recent news from Belarus. Although most of our listeners are aware of the recent incident regarding the Vilnius-bound Ryanair flight, I was hoping you could put it into a bit more context. Some people might think that if a plane flies over another country, of course that nation has the right to detain it. They might think something like, we don't have open land borders, why would we have open air borders? Could you expand to everyone? Well, first of all, the plane was forced down all of a sudden. It was diverted from, um, so it was flying originally from Athens, Greece to Vilnius, Lithuania. And then when it was flying over the airspace, over the territory of Belarus in the Belarusian airspace, it got diverted. There are issues here because it turned out that those bomb threats on the plane were false. And all this kind of, we immediately understood that it's because of this blogger, Roman Protasevich, who was on the plane. Why is it so dangerous as a precedent? Because now every autocrat, every authoritarian leader might do the same. And because we fly from one place to another, we don't want our planes to be diverted, to be forced down just because another dictator wants to arrest somebody he doesn't particularly like. Another issue here is that Lukashenko personally ordered a jet fighter to escort the plane and help it land in Minsk, in the Minsk airport. Then there are issues here, whether security, safety, lives and health of people, of um, those passengers on the plane were threatened. And now Lukashenko not only suppressing dissent inside the country, he also tries to arrest people outside the country while threatening the safety of passengers, foreigners, mostly EU citizens who were on the plane. So his fight with the dissent now has no bounds, has no limits, and has no borders, literally. So this is something for the West to consider and react accordingly, because that might create a precedent for other well, dictators who might want to do the same. So why do you think Lukashenko did it? Is it because he is desperate or this is a sign of emboldenment? 
That was a sign of weakness. He did it for several reasons. Firstly, because he wanted to show that he's almighty, which is not really true. Uh, I think he did not envision such a response from the West and such uh, consequences from the West. He wanted, and basically the regime threatened opponents, the dissidents, the opposition, that they would do anything to find them, to arrest them, to, as they said, make the world safer, because they consider the opposition international terrorists, as they said. So there was a threat. Now Lukashenko wanted to show that he kind of is ready to make this threat real. He arrested the blogger because, well, firstly, because Lukashenko is scared of information and scared of uh, bloggers, journalists, and the, the level of repression against them has been just incredible, unprecedented for Belarus. Roman Protasevich was added to the KGB terrorist list in November last year. So he became a sort of personal enemy to, to Lukashenko. Another issue here is this signal to all his opponents, right, that, that I will find you, I will arrest you, and I will do anything that possible to, to do it, to make it happen. So let's go back in history a bit. Belarus is often called the last dictatorship in Europe. What are the historical circumstances that allowed this? Uh, why do you think Belarus is such a unique case in Europe? Lukashenko came in power in 1994. This was three years after Belarus kind of got independence from the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union collapsed. And then he stayed in power. He immediately understood that he has to suppress the free press. He has to demolish the parliament. He has to take over control over courts, the constitution, and kind of every, every pillars of, of power. And he uh, very quickly got, got control over those kind of fields right, those pillars, because, well, that was a very kind of young country back then, young democracy. So so that was unfortunately easier for him. And uh, he's been a dictator since the very beginning. Uh, in 1999, in 2000, people were uh, kidnapped and they were not found. And imagine how much fear it cost among, among the people. And having the same person in power imposed, obviously, a lot of fear on everybody and on journalists as well. So, this situation continued. And um, I would say that last year, a lot has changed. The society has changed immensely. There was this pandemic and kind of the majority of people understood that Lukashenko doesn't really care about them, that he um, kind of, he lied, he, people, people died and there was no support for medical workers. And then people were already dissatisfied with Lukashenko because he's been in power for so long. The economy is um, in a bad shape. Shape. There is some mismanagement, there is poverty, uh, there is corruption, and people kind of understand that, they know about that. And they were also tired of his disrespectful attitudes towards um, the elderly, towards women, towards basically the society, the population in general. And because the list is so long, the list of this kind of reasons why people want him to go, it's impossible to satisfy uh, such voters when they're angry. So, and when police violence came, and now I would, I would say that it is clear that people want him to go, but Lukashenko stays in power only because of repressions and fear and his security forces and Russia's support. So would you say the pandemic actually was uh, one of the driving forces for all those claims that gathered for the years? against the regime. So is it the reason why it happened in 2020 and still continues the uprising? 
safety issue, kind of the, that was the most important reason. There was this always social contract between uh, the population, between citizens in Belarus and the uh, the authorities, basically the regime, right, the government, that, well, the government is going to secure safety in Belarus and people would have what they had, right? Well, not much, but still. And yeah, you can see that there was no war, there was no conflict in Belarus and people were um, sort of, well, quite happy about that, right? At least this kind of aura of stability existed in the country. And when the pandemic came, when people were dying and people saw that, well, their friends, their colleagues died and uh, there were lies on TV and Lukashenko lied and manipulated facts, they understood that they are not safe. You know, this kind of safety also had another dimension, right? Personal safety, health, life. And that's how people saw that they cannot rely on Lukashenko, on the government, on his regime anymore, because they are not going to secure this. And, well, for every other reason as well, right, which I mentioned, economy, um, mismanagement, poverty, dissatisfaction with Lukashenko in general terms. So all these reasons are important. And now, after August, another reason came into place, human rights values. That's not the society already. That's the society that, that cares about their rights. They are politicized and they want their votes to be respected, their opinions be heard during the elections. They don't want to be beaten. They want freedom of press. They want freedom of uh, assembly and, and the kind of many other freedoms that the, the government should kind of make sure that they have. So they kind of expect more now, not only high salaries or the stability, they want to have more. And now they don't have it, so that they want to change it. And uh, what about the role of the women this time? Because in one of your interviews back in 2020, you mentioned that Lukashenko actually underestimated women. And he said that the president, if the president was a woman, then the country would just simply collapse. And he himself didn't expect that women can be in the roles of power and lead the movement. So what do you think is the role of the women, not just in leadership positions now, but in other positions in this movement? If not women, I don't know whether all this would have happened. So firstly, yes, Lukashenko underestimated Svetlana Tikhanovska, underestimated women women in general in Belarus. Svetlana Tikhanovska was registered just because Lukashenko did not expect a housewife to topple him, which eventually happened. So she was registered and she was immediately able to unify forces, kind of join forces with other women who represented potential candidates who were barred from running. And those three women became really important, this kind of image of them, their symbolic gestures that they had, this uh, fist, you know, victory sign, this heart. It became really, really kind of symbolic and people all over the country came to their rallies and I was traveling back then with them and I saw how many people arrived each time when they were even in smallest, you know, smallest towns, smallest cities. And people also saw this respect and this openness of these women, this empathy. And it was such a contrast to Lukashenko himself. And then another issue is when three days of incredible violence right after the elections in August, these dark times in modern history of Belarus. And then we have, on the fourth day, we have women in white who came out to the streets with flowers. 
it was such a powerful image then security forces had to kind of stop back and they did not attack these women back then and it completely changed the dynamics of the protest it completely changed how the revolution looks like everyone was so shocked was so surprised was so inspired and then another wave of protest continued and these were incredibly cheerful it was it felt like a fast or something when people would came out would come out to the streets hundreds of thousands of them you know with flowers uh, wearing uh, red or wearing white clothes it was so powerful so basically women played a huge role they were at the forefront and i would say well it's because at some point women had to take a leading role when men were arrested and because women in Belarus are sort of conflict managers in a way so they did play a huge role in this revolution so what do you think the symbols play what kind of role do symbols play in this revolution i was reading that it started from the flags the the flags of red and white and these images started uh, being resembled in different symbols now people even wear socks white socks with red stripes like tennis socks and even get arrested for that there are flowers as well people get arrested for wearing flowers or having flowers what are other symbols are there and why do you think they they play a crucial part in the movement symbols are important in every country during every event When I was thinking before this revolution started, before this election campaign, what is going to unite us as the society? It was not clear for me. Language? Well, we have Russian language, we have Belarusian language, we have even two flags. We have this official flag, we have a white, red, white flag, which was not kind of so massively accepted by, by the society as it is now. And I was trying to understand And now, obviously, what unifies us is um, our billion, like people's will to see change, and they want Lukashenko to go. But more importantly, they want all these values, all these rights to be respected, and everything. They want kind of this is a an already democratic society in a way. And now symbols, right? So we have the right, right, right flag, which became really important during the protest because that was a contrast to Lukashenko, to his regime, to everything that he represents, right? The people have chosen the historic flag and now these colors are everywhere. These colors are repressed. Nevertheless, people adopted them, accepted them already. This was never the case before, at least to such such a scale. So I would say that symbols are important to unite people, to unify people, but it's not kind of the end of it, right? More importantly, people are united because of values, because of rights, and because what they want to see their country to be in the future. So what are your predictions as a journalist for the upcoming year for Belarus? Are we seeing an end game? So this is going to finish soon or we are just changing and creating a new status quo? Lukashenko is weak. A strong man who is confident of his position inside the country would not force down a plane. So that was a sign of weakness because Lukashenko feels back in a corner. He feels so contested that uh, he needs to constantly increase the level of fear, the level of repressions in, in the country. In August, people have shown massively that they want him to go and he clearly sees that. 
the discontent is not over. People might not be able to protest massively because they're repressed immediately. Rallies are being dispersed immediately by security forces. People are attacked by stun grenades, by shooting, by rubber bullets. It's all very kind of difficult and really um, stressful, really scary to, to go out to the streets. People are detained even when they walk just go to the grocery or go downtown. So that's why we don't really see massive protests, but the discontent has never disappeared. People have never given up. And that's something that Lukashenko feels. And the only way how he stays in power is because of repressions. However, it's a question for how long he's going to maintain the status quo, because it's really expensive to maintain, you know, this level of fear, this level of repressions, as long as he's able to pay his security forces, he might be able to stay in power. But then we have the elites, and they're not happy about the situation either, because it's kind of a lot of, well, they cannot kind of work, they cannot uh, get profit from, from their businesses, because it's really toxic for everyone. Lukashenko is becoming toxic even for Russia. Russia is one of the main supporters, one of the main pillar of Lukashenko's um, power and why he stays in power. And to what extent and for how long Russia is going to support Lukashenko is not really clear for me. Putin is not a big fan of him, but he wants him to stay in power now because Lukashenko is so dependent on him. So that's kind of the Kremlin's interest here. But I cannot, it's really kind of hard for me to imagine that this would take a lot of time because even before the elections, we knew that this is not going to be a comfortable term for him. And now we see the real level of people's dissatisfaction with Lukashenko. So for how long Lukashenko is going to kind of have enough resources to stay to maintain the status quo is really unclear. But it also depends on the West and the Western reaction. The more the West allows him to stay in power, the more... Um, Difficult is going to be to rebuild the society, rebuild the country, help the economy and kind of people who are so traumatized that they even commit suicide. So I would say that the sooner Lukashenko resigns, the better. So you just mentioned the, the responsibility of the West and EU, US. What kind of actions and what kind of role do you think these countries should play? Uh, because at the same time, we represent democracy and you cannot really intervene too much in uh, one country's politics. What would be uh, the best response? This is not about intervention, of course, but um, well, standing up for human rights is not interference. The West should stand up for human rights in Belarus and because people are being repressed on such a massive scale. And now even foreign citizens, right? Even the EU citizens. The West should react in a more comprehensive way. I completely understand that the West doesn't have many tools how to influence the situation, but it doesn't even use the tools that it has, unfortunately, or at least it doesn't use it in a sufficient way, I would say. The West has done a lot, but more should be done. Belarus should become a priority for the EU, for the West. There should be more kind of targeted and tangible response to what has happened and to what has been happening in Belarus, because this is not only about the plane. When we are talking about sanctions, sanctions should be more painful. Sanctions should make sure that Lukashenko's finances are being cut off. And I mean also his oligarchs. We haven't really sanctioned important oligarchs in 
Belarus inside the country. So they still enjoy impunity and they are the ones who support Lukashenko and his regime. Now assistance, that's very also important. Assistance to civil society, to media, especially to the victims of repressions. All these kind of should be together, right? All these measures should be taken together. We have justice. We have to make sure that all the perpetrators are being punished. And all these measures should be taken not to kind of punish a few people who give orders, but to change the situation, to end violence, to force the regime to agree to hold negotiations and dialogue with the society and pro-democracy forces. And then the issue of new elections, which, well, the West did not recognize the election results last year. And it should um, remind the regime that negotiations should uh, take place as soon as possible, as well as new free and fair presidential elections, because people clearly don't want Lukashenko to stay in power. Yes, for sure. And the the leaders of uh, Western countries should do more. And they already, you know, the, the head of EU and US already issued the statements. Lithuanian politicians are very outspoken about this issue. But it comes back to the regular people. So what can people like me or people on the street who are listening now to our podcast do to support Belarus? A lot can be done, but may, so statements, just to kind of reiterate the point, statements are not enough. There should be really tangible steps taken. There should be negotiations held as soon as possible. Countries that are powerful and can take the role of mediators should take this role and should take responsibility for the solution of the Belarusian crisis, political and human rights crisis. Now, when it comes to people, please do not forget about the situation in Belarus. Do not forget about Belarusian people. They suffer immensely. The level of repression is incredible. Since August, there have been 35,000 people who have been arrested and the number is growing and growing. Express your solidarity in any possible way. Write postcards, write, write letters to people who are in prison, to political prisoners. It's really important. It really, it's really kind of supportive. It really supports them. You can donate money uh, and support both political prisoners and media, journalists and kind of victims of repression who, who need this support. But more importantly, keep Belarus on the agenda. Talk about Belarus, report about Belarus. If not, me, if, the role of media is extremely important. Politicians make decisions because of media, because of attention. So journalists play a huge role in uh, in kind of helping the situation as well. Perfect. I will make sure I will include uh, these efforts, the list of the efforts people can contribute in our episode notes. And I'm happy that we are helping at least a little bit to bring the light on the issue. And I wanted to ask you the last question that I ask everyone who comes on our podcast. I usually ask about Lithuanian dreams. So I ask the dream for Lithuania. But as we are talking about Belarus specifically, what is your own personal dream for Belarus? I want Belarus to be really safe for people, both inside the country and those who travel to Belarus. Belarus is incredible. And I'm really um, frustrated that everyone is talking about Lukashenko. Everyone is talking about these repressions. But this country is much more. These are very beautiful people who are really who are hardworking, really intelligent, great people, kind people, open people. And I want you, I want foreigners, those who, who, who are listening to this podcast, to know what this country is and really is and what this country can offer to the West, to even to its own citizens. And I want this country to be a real 
part real member of the European family and uh, join democratic progressive countries and not I would say other countries that are not so well democratic in a way and uh, yeah so that we can develop and then we can share values and kind of help each other. Thank you Hannah for sharing your knowledge and the dream for Belarus. I hope it will inspire our listeners to go and take action to support people who are actually struggling and fighting for freedom, like Lithuanians, uh, Latvians, Estonians, and actually every nation struggled when they wanted to have a democracy in their country. So thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thank you. For our listeners, thank you for joining us today. It was me, Ruta Nojokaita. It was Lithuanian Dream Podcast. And today we spoke with Hanna Lubakova, a journalist originally from Minsk, Belarus. Hanna is a non-resident fellow at Atlantic Council and discovering this topic across different media outlets. I hope our conversation inspired you to contribute in your own ways to Belarusian struggle. Myself, it reminds me of the struggle Lithuania went through 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, actually, now. I didn't have a chance to see it uh, because I simply wasn't born yet. But now I really feel for Belarusian people. And I hope you feel for them, too. Go ahead and read more on LRT English about the situation in Belarus. I will leave the link uh, below. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at our website, lithuaniandreampodcast.com. This was the last interview this season. We will have yet another episode after two weeks where we will summarize all season and go for a short summer holiday. I would like to say thank you to our partners who make this project possible. It's Global Lithuanian Leaders, LRT English, and Leo in Berlin Club. As well, I would like to say a huge thank you to all our team, our editor, Sean Donovan, our sound editor, Gabriele Volodotskaite, our designer, Milda Shukita, and the, all the volunteers who volunteered. Actually, uh, we got a lot of volunteer requests recently, and I will be contacting you guys as well soon. Thank you for that. And we will be creating Lithuanian Dream Podcast community in the summer. So I'm very, very excited about it. Please write me if you want to contribute and connect um, as well with that platform. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful for you guys uh, that you continue joining our conversations and sharing your ideas and suggestions for Lithuania. Because after all, we are a Lithuanian Dream Podcast. That's it for today. It was me, Ruta Nojokaita, and it was Lithuanian Dream Podcast.